Support for Industry Focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, who are excited to introduce their all-new Rate Shield approval. If you're in the market to buy a home, Rate Shield approval is a real game changer, and here's why. First, Quicken Loans will lock your rate for up to 90 days while you shop. But here's the crucial part: if rates go up, your rate stays the same. But if rates go down, your rate also drops. Either way, you win. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to RocketMortgage.com/fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. I'm your host, Vincent Chen. Thanks, fools, for tuning in. And please welcome my guest today, Molly Fool contributor Dan Klein, to the show. Hey, Dan, how are you, sir? Oh, hey there, Vince. I'm doing great. How are you? Um, I'm pretty good. Glad to hear you're doing well. Uh, have you been doing much shopping during the holidays this season? <laughs> Everybody's getting Amazon gift cards. <laughs> That's not a bad route to go, giving people the option. Uh, I know people have different opinions of the gift card gift. Now, honestly, I bought my son. He wanted the new Fallout game, so it came out last week. We bought it ahead of time. Um, I'm sure I'll buy something for my wife, but pretty much anyone else is getting a gift card. Well, something you mentioned to me that I wanted to to talk to you about, I think the listeners would enjoy this, was the pants that you bought with the tailor online. So I think, and I brought this up because we've talked a lot about retail and sort of why you would still shop in a store. And one of the big reasons you'd still shop in a store, shop in a store, there's a tongue twister, (laughs) is, is fit. You know, if, if you buy a pair of pants from, I don't know, jcpenny.com and they show up, they might not fit. And it's a hassle. You have to send them back. So I used a digital tailor. And I'm not going to say specifically which one because I'm going to be a little critical of their product. But the basically, I had to put on like some like spandex shorts or you could wear like boxer shorts or something. And you set up your phone on the floor and there's like a little level. And it took maybe like 15 seconds to set up. And then you do a spin. And you record this spin and they promise you that you spinning in your underwear isn't going to appear on the internet anywhere. (laughs) Um, And I picked a pair of pants. I actually ordered two pairs of jeans. And they show up maybe 10 days later. And while I did not love the material they were made of, I think they look a little cheap as far as jeans go, the fit was absolutely perfect. So it worked. Yeah, I've been measured by a tailor. And my wife has had jeans made where you take like 20 measurements and you do, and they haven't worked. This, with just a very simple scan, worked. So I really think this could be the next step in sort of, you know, the end of retail. Like if you if you can get perfect fit with just a very simple measurement, I, I don't see why people wouldn't do that. Yeah, and I know when shopping online now, they try and do things where they get very specific with sizing charts. Um, they have uh, the kind of the bar where it says true to fit, runs large, runs small, but something like this where it seems like a pretty yeah, simple and, process and they can really and narrow that And that might down. work for you. You're a young, fit guy. <laughs> I, I'm a little older, a little less fit, you know, perhaps perhaps not as linear as you are. So <laughs> it's, it's a challenge to figure out how a shirt's going to fall or frankly, if a dress shirt will button and things like that. So if I could be guaranteed, plus there's a, there's a shame factor. You know, you don't want to walk into a store and have to be like, oh, we don't have one that big. Like, we'll have to special order it. Sure. If you could, if you could kind of like just get your size and not even know what size that is, there's there's something you know very magical to that. And I'm not saying this has to be purely at home technology. This might actually be something where you walk into a Macy's, go into a room, and it sort of tells you what what products on the shelves will fit you. It's a, it's a very adaptable technology, but I was stunned at how well it worked. Very cool, very cool. All right, let's move on. We got to get into our main uh, topic for today, and that 
is ultimately, I think we're kind of checking in on something that you and I have talked about in the past, this quote, the, the idea of death of cable. Um, several firms and research providers released their third quarter report reports for the industry earlier in November. So what are some of the big themes that you're seeing in these reported numbers? Well, it's the biggest one quarter drop we've seen since cord cutting became the trend. Uh, it depends exactly which data you look at, but it's a million to a million two customers. And that's more than, than most years have been since 2014 when the numbers stopped started dropping. So it's really, you're starting to see things take hold. And it's, it's actually a lot worse than that because there's about 4 million people that have uh, digital streaming services, things like uh, Sling TV that are live television, but they're cheaper products. So if you look at cable, which is in about 90 million homes now, and subtract that 4 million, it's actually only about 86 million full-paying customers, down from about 95 million uh, only four or five years ago. So it's a, it's a really stunning loss of customers. Yep. And another... You know, within this uh, broad pay TV, kind of traditional pay TV uh, subset of the industry, I'm seeing that one particular segment that took a really big hit also was with satellite. And specific, yeah. what, do you, what were some of the numbers breaking down there? The, the, I, the exact numbers, the satellite companies took pretty big hits. Hold on, I'm pulling it up right here. They lost, uh, DirecTV lost 359,000 and Dish lost 367,000. They both made up a tiny bit of that uh, when it comes to streaming customers. But the reason for those losses are because the satellite customers used to be the low price alternative to cable. That was the reason to put up with having a separate broadband provider was, hey, I'll get DirecTV, I'll save money for a couple years, maybe I'll bounce back and forth between between providers to keep getting a deal. Those are no longer the low cost, op- low cost options. They might be cheaper than traditional full-on cable, but they're not tr- cheaper than cutting the cord and using streaming services, whether that's live TV or Netflix or Hulu or any of these different options. So there's really no market for satellite TV anymore. It's sort of like, I'm going to get a product that's a tiny bit cheaper, that's kind of a hassle that goes out when it rains. And I speak from knowledge because my building has direct TV. <laughs> there you go. Um, I... Was looking at the trend line, the trend line essentially for these satellite providers. You look back to last year, uh, Directv they lost over half a million subscribers. Uh, Dish Network another one million. But going back to what you said in terms of some of the alternatives, I think they kind of see what's going on with their core business as well. Directv now and Sling TV those alternatives they made up. Pretty good chunks of those losses in 2017, um, both services adding about 700 to 800,000 customers. But with this most recently quarterly report, they're not they're really falling short now. Uh, you mentioned Dish Network uh, lost almost 400,000 satellite customers. They only signed up about 26,000 people sling TV, uh, AT&T's Direct TV business down 300 about 360,000 subscribers in the quarter but again just 49,000 direct tv now editions so you're right i think it really does come down to value and all the other alternatives that are out there now so it's become unbelievably difficult as a consumer. So I am both a cord cutter and a cable haver. I, I have cable in my main home. I'm a cord cutter in the, the home I'm taping this from now, uh, right, right outside of Orlando, Florida. And I have Amazon Prime, Netflix, Hulu, WWE Network, DC Universe, and I'm sure one or two other things I'm forgetting to sort of make out. Oh, and Sling TV. So 
I'm probably spending more. I don't even know if cord cutting has been a benefit for me. And it really becomes something you have to manage too much or to save money. You actually have to say, okay, I'm going to have Netflix for two months. I'm going to catch up on all my Netflix shows and I'm going to drop it and have Hulu for a month and I'm going to catch up on Hulu. It's consumers have a lot of choice. And while that is a good thing and it's about to get even more crowded, um, it is confusing. And, And there's probably people who think they're saving money that aren't. That is exactly something that we'll get to. I want to wrap up the show with that discussion. Next group that I want to talk about, though, is just uh, the big cable providers um, and how these companies, uh, they're starting from much larger subscriber bases. Um, You mentioned uh, the 86 million uh, cable subscribers. Just the penetration rate in general in the U.S. still pretty big for this segment. Um, They're seeing slower rates, too, of cord cutting, but they're also uh, leaning on growth in broadband or internet service, um, kind of as a crutch to keep up with that. So do the numbers in 2018 so far, uh, in your opinion, paint this doom and gloom picture in terms of death of cable? So, so they don't. Um, this isn't this isn't music where records are going to go away and people stop buying music in a meaningful sense and switch to streaming. There is still a huge base for cable and I don't know. We may not have hit bottom. Bottom might be another 10 million losses, but there is still a place. If you're a family, and I I have a a 14-year-old, and I'm married, and we all like different things. So to be able to have cable with 200 channels, there's a value to that. And I don't think that value is going to go away. Um, And you are seeing Comcast has about 22 million uh, cable customers, and Charter has 16 million. Uh, Comcast lost 106,000 this quarter, and Charter lost 54,000. Both of those gained more than that when it comes to broadband. And while the broadband numbers have slowed down as we're sort of nearing penetration, in general, the the gains for broadband have been dramatically bigger than the losses for cable. So until we see a true alternative to using your cable company for broadband, or in some markets there's there's one or two choices, maybe 5G changes that and some of the younger people decide I'm just going to watch on my phone or my tablet. But these companies are not seeing their revenue slow down. They're just seeing their basket shift up a little bit. Absolutely. I've heard this analogy from a few fools in the past, and I think it's pretty fitting. Um, but you, know, you take the comparison of these traditional cable companies like Charter, like Comcast, and you compare them to Big Tobacco. And that, you know, with Big Tobacco, it's U.S. smoking rates. They're, they've been falling for decades from their highs in the 1960s, over 40% to just 14% last year. But it took 60 years for that to happen, <laughs> right? In the meantime, tobacco companies have been, ra- they consistently raise their prices to make up for the reduced volume. So cable penetration, though, on the on the flip side of that, it's still really high. It's still, I think, 78%. And it's down maybe seven, eight percentage points um, from you know their highs, I think it was about a decade ago. But even if cord cutting accelerates, which we're not seeing it accelerate to the extent that a lot of headlines will make it appear, you know, traditional pay TV companies, they still have a lot of time to come up with different solutions to develop these other businesses like broadband to make up for that. And you know that's something that tobacco companies, frankly, haven't had yet until now with some of, the, uh, some of their other opportunities. But that's another episode. So the, the solutions... They've taken different forms. We're seeing uh, more and more streaming services, which we'll talk about later. Um, we're seeing price increases with the cost of an average cable package almost doubling in the past 15 years. And even some of the newer services like Direct, uh, DirecTV Now, Sling TV, PlayStation View, they've all raised prices in the past six months. And I think a big uh, driver of that, of these growing monthly bills for consumers, is 
lies in sports. Um, Dan, you spent you sent me a bunch <laughs> of reports of these huge deals being made for the rights to sports programming. So what so, does that so, look like? So there's a theory, and and maybe it's 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 true, is that live sports is sort of like the last thing people will watch not on a DVR, meaning they will see the commercials. So it's not only valuable in terms of of selling ads; it's valuable in terms of uh, promoting the rest of your schedule and. There's a bunch of examples. The the rumor is the new Major League Baseball deal with Fox is going to be 30% higher despite the fact that it's a declining audience. But the biggest one I'll point to is Fox is paying a billion dollars over five years for rights to two hours of programming from WWE. And that show, SmackDown Live, is going to air on Friday nights. And right now on USA, where it airs live on Tuesday nights, which is a better night to air, it does between 2.5 and 3 million viewers. That is about a million viewers less than the sitcom block that almost certainly costs less than $200 million a year for Fox to produce. That said, there'll be 52 weeks of live WWE programming. So they're saying that a million less people is worth more at a higher cost because we know people are going to watch it live. And that's for wrestling, which traditionally gets pretty lousy ad rates compared to other sports. So any sports, uh, UFC got huge money from ESPN to be part of their streaming service. Uh, DAZN, which is a, a service you probably haven't even heard of, is paying billions for mixed martial arts and boxing. And really, if like you and I were going to start up a sports league right now, we could probably get like 50 million a year from <laughs> someone. So you know, Dan and Vince play ping pong live could completely be a could be a thing. <laughs> All right. So do you think then there there is um, some merit to this idea where sports programming still is kind of king of the heap in terms of the content that some of these traditional pay TV companies can lean on to maintain their audiences and, and I th- maintain their I models? I think the premier stuff is. Mm-hmm. I think if you're the NFL, the NBA, to a lesser extent, hockey and baseball, which while their audience are small, they have a very you know, loyal defined audience. I think the WWE contract is too high, but they're going to perform exactly how they've performed plus or minus 10% over the five years. So they know what they're getting and it's not a mistake. But I do think you're going to see, you know, Bellator got big money from DAZN. I don't think you're going to see those deals get renewed. I think right now there is a huge rush to sign anything up. You know, uh, hey, we've got soccer from Spain, like you know, whatever it is. I think the lesser sports are going to prove to not be valuable enough. So there will be a bubble uh, as opposed to rates have been up, 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 up. But do I think someone will pay more for the NFL or the NBA when they come up? Yeah, I, I don't think we're there yet because people are are still watching and they'll watch on whatever platforms you can put them on. Yeah. And we're also seeing some some uh, non-traditional players get into the mix with sports content as well. You know, I'm on Amazon Prime. I'm streaming through on my Roku or my phone. I'm seeing them advertise their their NFL content constantly. Watch it live. Watch it live. Next up, we're going to look at some of the MVPs uh, in terms of the sports analogies in television and the long term outlook for the industry. Support for the Molly Fool and Industry Focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Let's talk about buying a home for a minute. Because of rising interest rates, there's a lot of unpredictability when it comes to buying a home right now. It's causing a lot of anxiety for people. Well, our friends at Quicken Loans are doing something about that. They're calling it the power buying process. Here's how it works. Quicken Loans will verify your income, assets, and credit in less than 24 hours to give you a verified approval. This gives you the strength of a cash buyer. Then, once you're verified, you qualify for their all-new exclusive Rate Shield approval. First, they'll lock your rate for up to 90 days while you shop. 
Now, here's the best part. If rates go up, your rate stays the same. But if rates go down, your rate also drops. Either way, you win. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. Rate shield approval only valid on certain 30-year purchase transactions. Additional conditions or exclusions may apply. Based on Quicken Loans data in comparison to public data records. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states. NMLS, consumeraccess.org number 3030. All right, Dan, as someone who closely follows the industry month after month, I'm sure you have your favorites when it comes to the different players in this business. So for the the traditional pay TV side of the business, um, who do you think is best in class? I think Comcast is best in class. You have to look at they're managing their subscription loss in the U.S. well. The Sky deal in Europe gives them an almost identical business, but Europe has not had the cord cutting. It may come, but when it comes, Comcast knows how to manage it. But the second piece of this, which Charter doesn't have, is Comcast owns this huge array of content. Uh, you know, They own Universal Pictures and all the related stuff from that. So what they can do is as things move to other formats, so let's say they, they have to make an NBC streaming service. Well, they can back that up with all their properties, their movies. They may not quite be Disney, but they still have a nice array of stuff. So they're very well positioned to sort of have things consumers want to see, and they can pivot to whatever format it is consumers want to see it. And that can mean licensing to someone else or creating their own thing. Yeah, I'll just add, for example, um, Comcast third quarter report, revenue is up 5%, net income up just under 10%. And uh, we mentioned this a little bit earlier in the show, but even though video subscribers declined 1.7% during the period, internet or their broadband subscribers were up over 5%. And again, these are both huge segments, over 20 million people signed up for each. And I think the really notable catalyst, which you uh, which you briefly mentioned for Comcast right now, is this Sky takeover. So Sky, it's based in London, biggest pay TV company in Europe. Um, now it's under Comcast control. It pretty much doubles or almost doubles Comcast's total customer base, and it's, it takes Comcast out of the U.S. You know that's a um, what a lot of people which is a, which about is a big change for a company that was very regional for a very long time. Exactly. And the deal was very expensive. Um, I've seen a lot of the coverage around this is the fact that the deal cost Comcast $39 billion in this bidding war against Disney, another bidding war, uh, because they were before they were both going after Fox. And Comcast also ponied up another $15 billion for Disney and Fox's uh, stake of Sky. So this basically solidified their position to the controlling shareholder now. They, they have Sky. And uh, just to put into perspective how much they paid, um, there was a 60% premium to for what Comcast paid to what Fox paid originally for its investment in Sky just a few years ago. So huge jump in this time. And it's a ultimately a really nice windfall for the combined Fox Disney Fox entity because you know, it's $15 of cash to, to bolster their coffers. I, if you're Comcast, though, yes, you're taking on a lot of debt, but you're buying an annuity. Like even if you start to see a year from now a similar trend to the U.S. of cord cutting, that's almost irrelevant. So you know I don't know what the exact cash flow of this is, and it, it, they haven't reported as a combined company yet. But 
they're going to make money on these 19 or 20 million subscribers. And even if that declines by one or 2% every year for 10 years, they're going to pay off what, you know, and come out well ahead of the game. So it's really a question of, yeah, they paid more, but does that change their earn out to four years down the line from three? Like it's, it's really somewhat irrelevant as long as you believe, and I do that this customer base isn't going anywhere anytime soon. Yeah, I, I do agree. I think the deal makes sense. Um, Sky has encountered some issues um, that these American companies have in terms of the European market. Uh, satellite business there is also declining, for example. Um, I think Comcast will have to execute well, though, make sure that they, uh, that with everything being integrated, they do it uh, very smoothly to justify the very large amount of money that they spent to take control uh, of this business. But let's move to the other side of the industry with the next MVP. And I'm curious now, who's your pick among the newcomers then in pay TV? So we're looking away from traditional cable companies, things like that. Who's your MVP? I, I mean, I feel weird saying this is a newcomer, uh, but you, you can't argue with what Netflix is doing. Sure. Uh, you know, if whether you have cable or don't have cable in the U S two thirds of you with cable have Netflix it's a, it's it's kind of a stunning number of subscribers mm-hmm. and really if if you said today from scratch i'm going to create a company that has the intellectual property that netflix now controls and the amount of hit shows that they own outright it's almost impossible so netflix came together almost by accident it was a service that was basically just rebroadcasting other people's stuff that dabbled in originals that had some hits and has gone to the tune of about six billion a year in creating this this massive firewall of originals where other than Disney, which obviously owns a ton of originals and maybe Comcast, there is nobody out there. Like, you know, if if you and I had $20 billion to start a streaming service, that wouldn't get us to, to half of what Netflix has now. That's a very hard business to go after. Yeah. I I think most fools are familiar with the Netflix story. Um, There's one data point that I'll mention here to emphasize what is, she, I think, will shape up to be a really nice tailwind for Netflix long term. So there's uh, this latest Piper Jeffrey taking stock with teen survey. I think you've heard of this, Dan. And yes. they said that Netflix and YouTube accounted for 70% of the daily video consumption among teenagers. 70%. Um, so there's an honorable mention for Alphabet's YouTube. Um, I know that That service has started to offer an ad-free experience with the monthly subscription. They also have their own YouTube TV bundle. Um, But in the same survey, cable TV's share of daily consumption among teens stood at just 60%, and that's down from 30% just three years ago. And I bring that up because, Dan, you and I have discussed this before. It's the very real potential for younger consumers um, and, and TV subscribers to basically grow up never having access to these traditional pay TV packages, meaning they'll never really miss it or have the desire to sign up for it as they grow older because there's all these other alternatives. And I do think there's something there. Yeah, and there, there's also a seismic shift of my generation, and I'm, you know, I don't know, 18 years older than you, something like that. We wanted the bigger television. I went from like the 13-inch black and white television to now I have like a 60-inch big wall television. My son will happily watch, quote, TV, YouTube or whatever, on his phone in a room that has a big television, that has YouTube on it if he wanted to, to be watching those things. I think that's a seismic shift 
And you're right, you can't miss something you don't have. That said, I do think as people get older and they get into relationships and they have kids, cable TV starts to make more sense. And I think that's kind of the firewall for the industry. You know, you don't have kids yet, but like if I want to watch the NFL and my wife wants to watch a Lifetime movie and my son wants to watch Cartoon Network, I could probably buy all those things in streaming packages, but it's easier to have cable. And I do think that is going to protect the industry. You know, young people also live in dorm rooms and are not used to having a big house, yet at some point, most of them go out and get a decent sized house. So I I don't think this is the end of cable, as some have predicted. Sure. And, you know, with that, it's just to keep in mind, we've seen similar trends, though, where a new market will go without something that that the more developed markets experience they think it's necessary. But I think about, for example, how mobile phones are the primary computing device in a lot of developing markets. And so, you know, PC markets are, you know, if you think about personal computers, they aren't taking as much uh, as much of a hold, as much of the market uh, in those regions. And it just kind of just changes the equation entirely for how people are using their computers, how people are using their mobile phones. And it's interesting to see how that will evolve for this younger generation now where, for example, you know, they're watching it all on this, you know, five, six inch, six inch screen on their phones. And I think obviously you have to factor in that network speed is only going to get better. Mm-hmm. It is still somewhat a frustrating experience if you want to watch a non-downloaded movie on your phone. There's buffering. There's, it depends where you are. But like where, where I am now uh, in, in Davenport, Florida, if I'm not in my house with Wi-Fi, in general, the service is you know two bars, one bar. I probably wouldn't want to be watching YouTube or, or Amazon Prime or something on it. As 5G networks get rolled out, that won't even be a consideration anymore. Yeah, that's a bottleneck that will, I think will cease to exist in, in just a few years' time. All right, the last thing I want to hit today, um, and you mentioned this earlier, so I was talking to my brother recently about streaming TV. We piggyback on each other's subscriptions sometimes, and he's, <laughs> starting, he's starting to get really frustrated by how many different services he needs to sign up with to catch everything that he wants to watch. And he said it's basically starting to feel like they're going back, you know, 20, 30 years to cable packages and the cost is catching up. So you just said you named, you rattled off like eight services that you're subscribed to and you mentioned how the cost ultimately might be more than a traditional cable TV package. So he's kind of in a position now he's like, you know, it's only a matter of time until there's, there's another Netflix kind of disruptor to come and change things up again from what we're building towards. What do you think about that? Yeah, well I, so I think there's two problems. Now I am not typical because I feel justified having all these subscriptions because I do this show and, and write about these things. So for me, when I'm deciding, hey, do I add DC Universe? It's not so much a question of, yes, I want to watch the new live action Titan show as it is. Well, I should check this out and be familiar with it. Sure. But when it comes to organizing your subscriptions, that is where I think the next explosion is going to be. If I I have a, a, a smart Roku TV here, and if I want to switch between Netflix and Sling and WWE Network, I have to go find it and hit the app, and it, it's not it's like it's almost like changing a cartridge in an old video game system. It's not a fun experience. So I do think there's going to be a layer of management where you can have access to everything you subscribe to, where you might be able to very easily go in and say, I don't want Netflix this month, and I will point out T-Mobile pays for my Netflix based on their promotion. Um, So I do think you might see devices or software that makes it a lot easier to say, these are all the services, this is what I have, 
and I'm going to turn off Hulu because I haven't watched it in three months. You know, th- there is nothing like my phone will tell me, hey, last month, here's how many hours you spent on social media. Here's how many. I think at some point we're going to get something that tells us, hey, you haven't watched Netflix in like two years. Maybe you should stop paying for it. Yeah. It's an interesting idea, though, in that um, all these different services are trying to differentiate themselves with uh, these great shows, uh, these original movies, uh, Netflix, Hulu, everybody's doing this. And if you want to catch everything, it really does become a challenge. And with enough services, all of a sudden, it's like, you know what? I'm paying more than $100 again every month for my TV bill, essentially. Oh, I'm definitely paying more than $100. <laughs> yeah. So I can understand the deja vu that my brother feels. I'm not quite there yet. I try and you know keep up a moderate list of, sh- of shows that I'm following, but um, that's- I, a- I think the, ch- the challenge is going to be the next wave of stuff. Yeah. You know, you have you have Disney's service coming. Every week I vacillate on the ESPN Plus service. Should I get that, even though it only has a couple of things I'm interested in? And you're gonna start to see like some like $2.99 a month things and $1.99. And like the basket's gonna just get so much bigger. But then you'll see a pushback. You will see some things go out of business. You'll, you know, you know, Yahoo tried hard to have a, a paid service and that didn't work. I don't think some of the YouTube paid options have, have worked. The, so you're going to see things fail, but there are going to be more big players, Disney, maybe Comcast and, you know, maybe one other. And it, it's getting very confusing. Yeah. All right. That's all the time we have today. Thank you, Dan, for joining us. Thanks, Vince. Uh, fools. Uh, Thanks for tuning in. As always, people in the program may own companies discussed in the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for against any stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based only on what you hear during the program. Full on. Full on.